This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. Good morning. Recently I was thinking about something Leonard Cohen said um, you know, he'd been a long time Zen practitioner and then at some point in his life he decided he, and he would go in and out of monastic practice and at some point in his life he decided he was going to just give up the music business and for 10 years be in the Zen monastery and so he went and he did indeed. He went to Mount Baldy and the Zen monastery and spent 10 years there. And then when he came out, he discovered that his manager, who had access, you know, often when uh, someone in, you know, in show business, they have a manager who takes care of all their mundane affairs. And the manager has signing rights, they're part of the bank account. So his manager, while he was away for those 10 years, spent all his money. And uh, I don't know how much it was, but it was a lot, it was millions. And he came out and she spent all his money. And I, I remember hearing, uh, reading a comment that he made and he said, well, I'm really annoyed with her but I'm still quite fond of her. <laughs> and, and, and it set me thinking about uh, the way in which, uh, a little bit like, what's more real? The things that annoy you or the things that, um, sort of touch you in a heartfelt way, you know, like maybe the things you're grateful for, or, you know, I think, like I, I think of mothers and their young children, you know, and young children can be quite annoying, you know, they do, don't want to do what they're told, they want to stay on the playground when it's time to go home and have dinner, or, or whatever, uh, but it's, you know, almost always is pretty clear to the mother, yes, I'm annoyed, but I still love my kid to bits, you know. But as, as we go through our life, oh, which is more, uh, which, which carries the most validity for us. Uh, the things that annoy us, disappoint us, uh, or the things we're grateful for. And I just mean that as one for instance, you know, not to say that's the full way we establish our version of what we approve of or disapprove of. Um, 
and I, and I think of monastic training. You know, when you go into a monastery, you you immerse in a system. You know, it's encouraging you. Sometimes you could even say demanding, if you can demand uh, attention, mindfulness. Like when I read that comment, to my mind, you know, it's my own bias, I thought, oh, that's the product of his monastic training, you know. What happens after 10 years in the monastery? You're annoyed, but you're still fond of the person, you know. But then in our everyday life, um, how do we uh, establish what you might call virtue? You know, is this a virtuous person or is this an evil person? You know? And really what we're talking about is, okay, this part of, my, of them I approve of and this part I don't approve of. You know? Um, and it has deeper implications. Um, like is, uh, am I a virtuous person or am I an evil person? Is this person virtuous or evil? Is this a terrible world or is this a beautiful world? Huh? Um, is this a beautiful world where people are doing uh, stupid things, hurtful things, because they are uh, confused? Because they're so unsettled that um, they do stupid things. Many years ago, I met a guy, and he was a heroin addict. And we were chatting, and he was saying, yeah, and then I broke into my best friend's apartment and stole his money. And I thought, I don't think your best friend was pleased by that, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe he forgave him, you know? Life is funny, you know? It's interesting, it was some way in the way he told me about it. Um, I, I could see in his world, you know, like what he taught me about being a heroin addict was the most important thing is getting more heroin. You know? Nothing matters more than that. And given that, well then, why wouldn't you break into your friend's apartment? <laughs> Especially since you know where he has his money. <laughs> um. And then recently I was with someone 
he was complaining about somebody else. But it felt like in the moment there was a vehemence to the complaint, as if he was saying, this is a terrible person, you know? And I must confess, I didn't interrupt him, but really what I wanted to say to him was, fair enough, there's something about this person that really annoys you, but you don't have to hate him. <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't have to feel like he's the worst person in the world. Uh, And you know that part where I said about the foolishness is what makes people do harmful uh, things. It, in certain Buddhist teachings, that's exactly the proposition. You know? That in a way, there isn't evil. You know, no one is evil. They're just confused. You know? It's, it's a very generous approach to life. Oh. How did he get to be a heroin addict? Well, all sorts of difficult and painful reasons. He told me that he had been a soldier in the Vietnam War. And he kept re-signing up, you know, you, at the time you were mandated, you conscripted into the army and you had to go. And then usually after your two years, you were free to leave. And, and he signed up for another two years, and then another two years. And then he tried to sign up for a, a fourth two years. And essentially they said to him, you know, Nobody in their right mind would keep signing up. <laughs> so, so obviously, <laughs> you're not fit to go. <laughs> it says a lot about being in the American Army, doesn't it? <laughs> we want people who don't want to do this. Because <laughs> anybody who wants to do it, it's kind of weird. So in Buddhism, this teaching that harmful and hurtful things that any one of us might do, you know, are um, the product of confusion, ignoring, or misguided views about life and other people. And then to think about yourself and think, yes, but I reserve a special distaste, disapproval, aversion for this person or these people. You know, in the United States now, those of us who think of ourselves as kind of liberal, you know, and generously 
attribute to ourselves a kind of enlightened view of the world. You know, we promote climate change. We promote, you know, taking care of the environment and the equality of the, of all people. And these, you know, I'm quite convinced of those, to be honest, those kind of views. And then we have a president who seems to be the antithesis of it, you know. And I feel like, what a great service he does us, you know. <laughs> like, you, you, it's so, he's, it's so, such a, a generous activity to kind of set yourself up like that, so smug that people like me can think, oh, that's so bad. <laughs> He is such a terrible person. Um, so. Arrogant, selfish, stupid, misguided. You know? And of course, it's a little embarrassing to have him as president. <laughs> you know, <it's> like <laughs> At least the last person seem to be thoughtful, intelligent, and caring, you know? Um, but really what I'm saying is two things. One, can you catch yourself on? Could you, could you see how you're setting up your own version of who's worthy of your praise and who's deserving of, of your condemnation. No? However that might be. I think usually it's not so intellectual for us, it's more emotional. No. So that's one part of it. And then a deeper and more profound part of it is um, how are you holding life in general? Um, it's like Is, is life worthy of your appreciation and your gratitude? Or is your, your grumbling, your disappointment, your frustrations the real truth about life? And it's not an easy thing to get at. You know, that's why I say, well, after 10 years in the monastery, you know, for myself, Leonard Cohen, I loved his music and I loved the fact that he was such a dedicated Zen practitioner. Um, so he was over here in the category of people I approve of. Um, but there's another Buddhist teaching especially in the Mahayana, the, the Bodhisattva teaching. You know, one way to translate the Bodhisattva teaching is 
don't give up on anybody. No? Just... Okay, right now he's a heroin addict. I mean, and I have seen... I mean, I've, lots, I've seen lots of people who didn't turn their life around, tried and didn't. But I've seen people who... Like I used to teach in a, a residential drug and alcohol rehab center. And, and it was for people who were on the streets. And they would come in and they looked half dead, both physically, in, in their spirit, and also intellectually. And then over the course of the six months, they'd come alive, and this stupid person would turn out to be quite an intelligent person, quite a thoughtful person. And some of them would come alive so much that at the end of the course, we'd just hire them to be counselors on the course. They, they, they just had an intuitive sense of how do you deal with someone who's in the throes of uh, substance abuse. So the Bodhisattva says, this is what happens. This is what happens to people. This is what happens to the ways in which we can let our prejudices come forward and define our experience. And you don't give up on anyone, even yourself. And you don't let your prejudices be the whole story. Sometimes in the Buddhist uh, studies, it says, well, the Bodhisattva vow came along. Initially, Shakyamuni um, got enlightened, started to practice. Other people wanted to practice with them. And that became a kind of monastic tradition. They were renunciates. They were mendicants. And they meditated a lot. And then sometimes in Buddhist studies it says, and then when the shift happened from this sort of monastic renunciate tradition to more inclusive people living more regular lives, the Bodhisattva vow came up. Interestingly, it, it works well, but actually further studies showed that that actually wasn't <laughs> the, the root cause. Something else was. Um, interesting that the root cause of the Bodhisattva vow and that Mahayana tradition was to return to the essence of Shakyamuni's teachings. Um, 
And it's a very interesting uh, notion. Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, I read that he once said, um, I watch carefully how you treat each other. You know? How do you treat each other? You know? How do we treat each other? How do we treat the people in the world? You know? get to see how you're living your own intentionality, your own practice. Um, and of course how we're doing our, trying to do our practice, we're trying to combine the two, you know, have a meditation practice and have this vow being expressed in our lives, in our world. And I think when it's being expressed in our world, we need this uh, shorthand, you know, notion, something like, don't give up on anybody. Doesn't mean you approve of what they're doing right now. But you don't let your mind and your heart formulate some uh, notion of dismissal, disapproval, condemnation. You know? Sometimes I contemplate on Donald Trump. So you have a hard time calling him President Trump. <laughs> I contemplate on Donald Trump, and I think, can you imagine picking up the newspapers each morning and seeing these articles trashing you? I mean, how does the poor guy ever come out the door and face the world? And I love to listen to uh, the comedians like Stephen Colbert, who loves to trash him. It's kind of wicked pleasure, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in the middle of all your own prejudices, to remind yourself this is a human being, you know, this is someone who's trying to live a life, who's trying to be happy, who's trying to avoid the things they're afraid of and search after the things that bring them satisfaction, love, happiness. Donald Trump got off a plane and he had his wife with him. And as they were walking over, he tried to take her by the hand and she kind of like pulled her hand away. And like all the newspapers picked up on it. Well, 
how does our practice translate into our everyday affairs? No. How does your practice translate into how you relate to the person in the shop who's selling you, you know, groceries? There's a story about Suzuki Roshi that I really like. He's driving from the monastery Tassajara back to San Francisco. It's about 140 miles. And they stop to put petrol in the car. And while the car's, the driver's putting petrol in the car, there's a group of Hell's Angels, you know, the guys who ride big Harley motorbikes. Uh, and Suzuki Roshi, walks straight up to them and starts a conversation with them. And then the whole time, the 20 minutes or so, all this stuff's happening, Suzuki she's over there chatting away with these guys, you know. So you got this little Japanese priest and these big rough, tough bikers. Someone always struck me as kind of Beautiful. Talk to anybody. Everybody's just another human being. And then in another way, everybody's completely themselves. They have this remarkable trueness to just being the person they are. Um, so it's a very interesting to watch yourself and where do you harden? Where do you harden in your emotional relationship to someone? You know, even just inside your own head. You know, not. Where do you harden in your opinions, your judgments? I would never talk to them. You know. Who are the them? What makes them them and not us? You know. And how, I don't think it's simplistic to say that those are the, the activities of our human consciousness and heart that have ravaged our world. You know? How many wars would we fight if we didn't think of them as something different from us? You know? Usually when there's a war, them are not even human, you know, so we can go massacre them. It's not a bad thing. And of course, we don't do that, but what do we do inside our own heads?
I heard it said that Leonard Cohen had about $10 million, and then his manager spent the whole lot. And he said, yeah, I'm really annoyed, and I'm still quite fond of her. And the Chinese are trying to obliterate Tibetan culture. And they imprison and kill and torture Tibetan monks. And the Dalai Lama says, my good friends, my enemies, the Chinese. I think it's a great mind bender, that one. How scrupulous can you be, you know, when you watch yourself hardening in your negative attitude about someone? Uh, is that is that going to be definitive? Uh, is that it? Is that the whole story? You're going to stop there? Or in some generous way can they be that and can you have the response you have to that aspect of them as you experience it and can there be something else you know some way in which uh, you can accept their core humanity There's a strange Chinese folk story that was then turned into a koan in the koan collection, the Mumon Khan. And here's the story. There's a girl living, living in a village near a river and uh, she falls in love with a local guy, but her family don't approve of him probably because he, did, he was too poor to, for their liking. And so she decides to run off with the guy. So they make a plan, and one night they run off, they get in a boat, and they sail down the river, and, um, and they start a new life. And they get married, and they have a couple of kids, but she has this deep yearning to go back to her home village and see her parents again. And um, so in the end they say, okay, we'll do it. And they go back to the village and uh, she sees her father and he looks at her and she's delighted to see him. And she's wondering, how is he going to relate to me? Is he going to embrace me as the daughter he loved and misses? Or is he going to reject me as the daughter who ran away with the man he didn't approve of? 
He looks at her puzzled. And she says, Dad, it's me. And he says, but you're home in your room, in your bed. He says, when that young man left, you became deeply depressed and stayed in your bed. And you more or less haven't left your room for all those years. And they both look at each other totally puzzled. And she says, well, can I go see the person? And they go and the person who's in the bed gets up out of the bed and the woman who went to ran away and had two kids and they embrace and become one person. So that's the Chinese folk story. And, and the, the name of the person is Qi. And the story, the question, the koan of the story is, who was the real Qi? You know? So you can ponder that. Maybe you can ponder, who is the real you? Who's the real me? The one who thinks Donald Trump's a first-rate Egypt, <laughs> worthy of my derision? Or the one who thinks must be hard to go out the door in the morning when uh, half the world seems to be using you as their uh, source of amusement and criticism. Okay. Thank you.